Okay, Book of Romans. I'm going to try to give you an overview today. But before we get to the overview, we need to consider the leftover historical background that I gave you last time. And just a reminder of the importance of this book. Here's one of the writers. I gave you several other quotes of other commentators, other writers. Relating to the book of Romans, Coolridge says, this is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. Can you imagine that? Profoundest piece of writing in existence. And I gave you some other quotes that reflected a little bit of that sentiment. I won't give you the others since we saw them last time and we want to move ahead. And just to remind you, this letter was written to the center of the world. The Tokyo, in terms of population of that day, or the Washington, D.C., in terms of the capital or the politics, capital of the free world today, Rome was both of those. So Rome was very, very important in the first century. This letter is very strategic. And I showed you some slides. I'll show you some more today. You can see if you do go to Rome, and a lot of archaeological remains from the first century. You were there this week? Wow, you should have sent me your photographs. So the Arch of uh, Severus is in the center of the slide there. You probably saw that. And the uh, Temple of Saturn and everything else. And I showed you this map. Most of what remains in the first century is around that kind of the center of the slide. And I mentioned that prominent structure towards the forefront there. Uh, That's the Circus Maximus, and I'll show you some slides from present-day Rome. We look at the authorship, which in some cases is more important than others, and I gave you reasons why we believe Paul. I mean, you may not question it, but the unbelieving world or scholars outside of our circle usually question everything in in the Scripture, so you need to be able to give an answer if you have to. You might know others from other churches. We looked at the audience, and I gave you some of that, and that's kind of where we left off last time. I mentioned the audience is two believers. Now, I stress that because there are some commentators that see the book of Romans as addressed to a mixed audience because it deals with soteriology, and soteriology is the doctrine of Salvation. salvation, and that's a main element of the book of Romans. So some commentators think that it's written to a mixed audience and that it's somewhat evangelistic. But I tried to stress the idea that it's written to believers to give them a foundation of theology, clear thinking, clear understanding of this doctrine of salvation so that the believer can be equipped to go out and share the gospel. And that's true, I believe, of virtually every book of the Bible. It's written to believers. It's not written to the unbeliever. The only exception may be the Gospel of John. The audience was mixed, and I gave you these last time. And they give uh, some direct references to a large Jewish contingency within the church, which is not surprising because all of the early church was predominantly Jewish. It wasn't until later on in the book of Acts that you began to get Gentiles. And you have this issue of Jew and Gentile. In fact, the issue of what what is the church all about? I don't think the disciples even understood that until probably well into the book of Acts or well into church history or early first century. So a large Jewish contingency, also a large Gentile 
So Gentiles are already beginning to come into the church in large numbers. And there's some of the verses that uh, give direct reference to them. So I conclude that we have both Jew and Gentile. and In fact, it's very cosmopolitan. Not only Jew, Gentile, but you'd have slave, free, you'd have wealthy, you'd have poor, you'd have lower class, you'd have an upper class, you would have government officials even, and people that uh, are in business and whatever. So a multitude of a variety of different people, Gentile and, and in fact, Jewish. And we left off with looking at the church. What was the church like? Let me give you a little more detail on it. The origin, we don't know where the church originated. It's not original with Paul. In fact, Paul has not even visited Rome. This has been a long-standing desire of Paul, and he mentions that two times in the book, in the introduction and in the conclusion. His desire to visit and have fellowship with the Roman believers in uh, the city of Rome. So what is another option that uh, you might propose for the origin of the church? A few possibilities. What might you propose? No proposals? Jeff's got the answer. He always has the answer. It's always the wrong one, but he's always got the answer. I think there's a theory that suggests that there were those who were present at the crucifixion during the crucifixion week okay. uh, who were there from all nations, just like... Uh, 50 days later, Pentecost, Pentecost. Uh, who were Jews who then traveled back to Rome and took the message. Exactly. In fact, probably the day of Pentecost, because on that day, remember, there were how many that were saved on the day of Pentecost? 3,000, and it gives a list of places where they came from. On the day of Pentecost, Jewish people would come from all over the, the empire, the Roman Empire, and it includes specifically Rome, And most scholars, conservative at least, have the idea that probably from that group of people that came from Rome on the day of Pentecost, part of the 3,000 of them went back to their home city, and now they want to have fellowship, and a church is founded. And that's probably the, the best idea there. So Paul did not found this church, even though there are others in the New Testament that he did found. The nature of the church, I gave you a little bit of the composition of that church. So we already looked at that, Jew, Gentile, but believing, cosmopolitan, of all uh, types of people. The size, commentaries vary in terms of what they estimate. Obviously, we don't have any direct statements by anyone saying that on each Sunday morning, they'd have da 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 number of people. And the smallest that I saw in a commentary, 75, which I think is very, very low. Very, very low. It's probably, and most of the commentators kind of drift towards about a 1,000 or more, or at least a 1,000. So was it a megachurch? Would it be considered a megachurch? Yes? That was a trick question. <laughs> Any other suggestions? Oh, he's got it. No, he says no. And how do we know that? How do we know that it was not a mega church? Anybody got it? So Steve, Steve is suggesting a multitude of house churches, and that's good. And I don't remember, I didn't count them, but he says five. That's probably about right, or maybe even more. 
there are specific mentions of different house churches that probably were maybe this size, actually. Some of them maybe even smaller, some of them maybe even larger, but probably smaller than what we have here this morning. And there's a multitude. In fact, many of the people that are addressed in that long introduction are probably leaders. Some of them very specifically said, greet those that meet in your house. So there could have been a multitude, 20, maybe, who knows, 30 house churches that already existed in the time frame that Paul is writing the letter to this group of people. So it was not one large church that met in one large place. In fact, this was the case throughout the Roman Empire. And it was more typical in Rome because Rome was the center of everything. So it was the largest area. And there was a variety of churches. And most of them were probably very small, maybe even 10, 12 people. So the accumulated number of the church, the universal church in Rome would have been about a thousand and a little bit more than that. Okay, does that make sense? So the author is Paul. The audience is the church at Rome with approximately a thousand plus members if you gather all of them together. And there's no evidence that they ever had these united church meetings. For one thing, it was difficult to find a place and a public location or a a government location would have been prohibited because the church was basically not sanctioned by the government, and in some cases later on there was persecution from government. The occasion, this would be at the end of the third missionary journey. If you read the book of Acts, it gives you the sense that, and if you read uh, the introduction to the book of Romans as well, and the conclusion, you get the sense that Paul has wanted for a long time to visit Rome, and strategically, this is the center of the world. He would want to have fellowship and encourage those believers in Rome, and he would want to, as well, probably do some work in evangelism and strengthen the church at Rome. And this was something that he was not able to do, and now, towards the end of that third missionary journey, he realizes that there's not going to be enough time to visit the city of Rome. I think, and I don't have any, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us this, so I don't know, but I get the impression that Paul had in his mind, his plan was third missionary journey, Rome, and then I'll go back to Jerusalem. But he's running out of time. He wants to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. That tells us that in the book of Acts on third missionary journey. So the second best thing to do is what? Write a letter, send an email. So this is Paul's email to the people in Rome. And it would be in this time frame, 56, 57. How old would Paul be? 56 or 57. Very good. So this, pardon me, third missionary journey of Paul. And he was probably in Corinth. Point up here, see Athens, Corinth up there. Uh, notice Sencrea. I'm going to show you some photographs of it. And the missionary journey is coming to an end, and then now he's got to go back. <clears throat> Location, he writes from Corinth. This is his last stop. Well, missionary stop, at least. And now it's just traveling back. And that's just a closer shot of Corinth, Sencrea, and Athens. 
Sincrea, in fact, somebody look up uh, 16, 1, and 2. Who's got it real quick? In terms of geography, this is on the Aegean side. I don't think I brought this out last time, but I'm going to show you the location of where Corinth was. He's writing to, to Romans, but he's he's in Corinth. And who's got, you got it? Read those two verses. I commend to you Phoebe Arthuria. That you, that you may in the manner worthy of the, and assist in whatever business she has myself also. Okay, it's believed, at least by that's probably the best evidence, that little scripture there, that the one that took the letter was this woman that came from that location, that little cove. That, in the first century, was a seaport, and there's archaeological evidence to that effect. And because Corinth is located on this isthmus, what would happen, because of the location and weather conditions and the situation in the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, many times ships would dock right there, and if they were smaller, or they would unload the cargo, and they would carry the cargo across, and just on the other side is another body of water, only a few miles, short bike ride, on the other side, they would load it onto either another ship or carry the entire ship from one side to the other, and they would avoid, it, especially in the winter storms. Remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul got shipwrecked because of some of that storms? Well, oftentimes they would avoid that by going across the land there, or at least they would transfer the cargo. So here's Sincrea, or the archaeological remains of a port, and that's where that other photograph was, is located. And you can actually walk out, and I, I have, I walked out, out into the, the Aegean, and you can see stones underneath the water. Obviously, all you can see there are the stones that are above the surface. Yeah, all of that are part of the ancient port of St. Crea. So the writing of the book is close to the time. Now, he would have written First and Second Corinthians before he got to Corinth, and then from Corinth, he's writing the book of Romans, the end of the third missionary journey. And actually, it would be close to the end of his life. He's already 50, how old is he? 50, what? 657. And he dies around 67, somewhere in there. So this is towards the end of his, his mission. And he writes to the church in the city of Rome. So what was it like to live in the city of Rome in the first century? What would the people have seen? And Paul, on later occasions, probably visited. What would he have seen? Well, let me show you some more photographs. Here's the forum. Most ancient cities that they've uncovered have a forum that had a multi-purpose. In New Mexico, that would be like the plaza. You go up to Santa Fe, they have the, plaza, the old plaza where the city began. Up in Taos, you have another plaza, a lot of little small towns. In Albuquerque, you have what? Old Town. That's like Old Town, where you, you would have all kinds of activity. Economic activity, social, you met your friends there, you sat on the benches there, you talked, you did business there, you did political speeches or whatever political action you wanted to accomplish. Uh, yeah, everything was there. Yeah, the whole social thing. So this is the forum at Rome. 
And another shot, it was quite extensive, as you can see. This is a huge city. Imagine a city like that. You engineers, how do you handle getting water to people? How do you handle getting other things out, the uh, the waste and all that? And how do you manage uh, communication? You know, all the things that big cities have to do. Now, you don't think about it, but us engineers, we get, you know, that's kind of our deal. Imagine that in a city of a, of a million people in the first century. Well, that just gives you a feel for the size of the city and along with some of the remains that date back to the first century. Column of uh, Porcus, and I don't remember all of the archaeology behind it, but it's right in the center of the forum. And like I said, all of this dates back to the first century. Now, some of it later, and a lot of it even preceding the first century. But this is the time of Paul, and these are the structures that are, would, would have been there in the first century. There's another shot in the forum, and there's the temple of Saturn over here off to the left there. Column of Trajan and other excavations. So they honored their emperors. So this would be built probably during the reign of Trajan or shortly after. And I showed you that photograph, Temple of Saturn and Vespasian, who was another emperor. Temples, obviously, lots of temples in the city, lots of religion, not Christianity per se, but religion. Pagan religion, mystery religion, worship of emperors, the occult, all of the Greek gods, the ancient gods that they still worshipped, and the counterpart Roman gods, so lots of spiritual activity in the city of Rome. Jim? Would the cross get up on top of that later? That would be later, yeah. In fact, that that's probably a later, the back part is probably a much later structure. It's the front part with the columns that is ancient. And there's Circus Maximus, so a lot of athletic. you got to have sports. I mean, otherwise you don't have life. You can't learn life principles because you learn every life principle from athletics. Some of you didn't know that, but now you do. Well, they had athletic games. They had chariot races, foot races, all kinds of Olympic sports. And that remains from first century. They call it Circus Maximus. There's another shot to give you kind of a perspective of the size of that whole thing. That photograph that I showed you at the beginning gives you a perspective of size in terms of the other structures. That was a model that I showed you. And this is about all that remains of the seating. So you'd have stadium seatings throughout all around that whole area. So you could seat. don't have any estimates, but pardon me. 250,000? Okay, you guys were just there, so you have all the, the data. They could seat 250,000. You guys visited that, that site? Yeah. Okay. That's the remains of the seating, and you can barely make it out. Can you see kind of that rough stuff there? That would be the remains of the seating. And obviously the Colosseum, again, athletic events, but also things related to the Christians. They would be fed to lions there, political activity. Now, this dates, what does this date to, Steve? Uh, second century, I, I believe? No, that, was, that, that was not there in the first century. No, it was not. Or, At the end of the first century. Okay, the end of the first century. But in Houston, they have an astrodome that was the seventh wonder of the world. Well, it's kind of an empty building falling apart. They build a new stadium. Uh, what is it, Reliant Stadium or whatever today? This still stands. 
they're debating in Houston whether to tear down the Astrodome. I mean, it's going to cost more to repair it and maintain it and fix it. 2,000 years here for you engineers. There's the inside of it, and they believe a floor would have occupied the center there with rooms on the bottom to keep the Christians in some places and the, uh, the lions in another place, depending on the athletic activity. And this, what's the seating of this? I think it was like 25, oh, do you remember? 40 or something. That much? 1,000? Evacuated. Could evacuate in 15 minutes. Steve, why don't you do the rest of the thing? <laughs> <laughs> they did have elevators. 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 Yeah. yeah, we think they're primitive, right? Yeah, elevators. Great. So that's Rome. That's city Rome. Pardon me? Yeah, exactly. Very perceptive. So, as a result, there are a lot of stones that are not even on that site. And just what they can piece together to reconstruct some of those structures. Yeah, very good insight. The purpose of the book is predominantly doctrinal. And I believe that when Paul obviously saw that he was not going to be able to make it to Rome... The second best thing is to send them what he would have said or the preaching that he would have had or the teaching that he would have done had he gone. So he's, he's basically sending them his theology. That's why it tends to be theological or doctrinal. And the emphasis is, in fact, theology. He's not addressing a problem or a series of problems like he does when he writes to the Corinthians. The book of Corinthians, problem after problem, they had divisions, they had problems with incest, they had problems with lawsuits, they had problems with doctrine, of course, but they had idolatry, they had all these problems, and the book of Paul is writing these, he says, now concerning this, now concerning this, now concerning spiritual gifts, so they had an abuse of spiritual gifts, Paul is correcting, so that, the letter of 1 Corinthians is more corrective. The book of Romans is the other end of the spectrum. He's not dealing with issues or problems. He's dealing primarily with theology. And I believe the reason for that, he's not writing a treatise. In other words, he's not. it's not an ivory tower treatise that you might just say, oh, I think I'll write something, something profound and just send it off to the Romans. And maybe it'll get published and maybe I can retire and live the rest of my life in luxury. All right? That's not the idea. He is writing probably to give them the very theology that he would have delivered had he taken a trip to Rome. Got it? So it's doctrinal. And this is the heart of Pauline theology. This is the essence of Paul's soteriology. Now it deals with other issues that I'll look at in a moment here. So some of the characteristics, obviously the theological emphasis. That would be the main characteristic of the book of Romans. And in that, he is giving us all of his theology. He gives us theology proper. Theology proper is the doctrine of God. Yeah, the, the theology of God. And we know that God is a trinity or there's three persons in one. So it deals with Broadly, it deals with God the Father. It deals, a subset of theology proper would be the doctrine of Christ is called Christology. And then there's a doctrine of the Holy Spirit that 
would be a subset of theology proper. So theology proper is the doctrine of God. And what he's teaching in the book of Romans, one of the main doctrines that he's emphasizing in terms of who God is, God is a righteous God. We're going to see that over and over in the book of Romans. We're going to stress it because that's the theme. How many times does it occur in the book of Romans? A lot. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Curse a lot. Very precise. Anyone have a more precise answer? Twelve. Ooh. Twelve. Does anybody have any higher bid? About 50. That's closer. It's a little more precise, but still a little bit not precise enough. Down to the number. 55 is what I mentioned last time. 55 times. So that, and more than any other, at least theological term and in general major term. There may be more <laughs> articles, words like and in there, but in terms of significant words, righteousness. And mostly in relationship to God. In other words, God is a righteous God. So we need to understand what that is. In terms of righteousness, that deals with standing, that deals with integrity, and God is the standard of righteousness. And everything in the book of Romans is measured in relationship to God. That's why he says there is none righteous, no, not one, no righteousness in man. Because all are, what are the, what's the theological term that uh, Linda came up with? I don't know where they're at. Scumbags. Scumbags, all right. <laughs> Theology proper. We're going to use that theological term from here on out. There's none righteous, no, not one. All are scumbags. So Christology, because he is the means by which we, the only means by which we can come to a right standing or become righteous in the eyes of God. It's not anything in us. It's based solely on what Christ has done. So he is the key and the essence of where we receive salvation. So if you want to understand Christology, which is a subset of theology proper, the book of Romans is going to give a lot of Christology. And not only relating to the doctrine of salvation, but others as well. Pneumatology, another major area. And the focus particularly is at the center of the book. Center of the book is chapter 8. All right. You can speak it out. Chapter 8. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is the focus. He is the means by which... All of these doctrines are implemented, including soteriology, how we apply them and we live in a different way in the power of the Holy Spirit. The key to Christian living is in Romans 8, and the key is in relationship to pneumatology. Why is it called pneumatology? Pneumo you engineers? Pneumo is breath. Pneuma? Okay. It's related to the idea of breath or wind even. Pneumonia, breathing, pneumatic, engineers, pneumatic, related to that idea, the science dealing with movements of air or gases, okay? And another word, the literal meaning of the word for spirit is really related to pneuma, so it's the holy wind or the holy spirit. Jim? Well, it's also interesting to describe when it says... 
He's, he's described as having long, long nostrils. Okay. That's probably a good literal explanation of the passage you have in mind. Okay. But the idea of animation, life, brass, comes from the spirit. And in the same way, in terms of having energy and power, all of that is centered in pneumatology. So we're going to do pneumatology. The doctrine of the spirit and where we have power to be able to live the Christian life. Also, we're going to look at anthropology. We've already learned one of the key concepts. That's right. If you want to be a little more formal, you could use depravity. But we've adopted a more contemporary uh, theological term there. Okay, anthropology. And not just that, but we're going to talk about other things. We're going to talk about a new nature that God has granted as a result of a right standing, standing before him. So anthropology is going to be a major theme as well. How do, do people come to Christ? We're going to see that Christ or the Father takes all the initiative. There's none that seeks after God. And if that's not clear enough, not even one. All right? None seeks after him because scumbagology. I'll have to look that up. Probably comes from the Hebrew. Soteriology, what's that? The doctrine of salvation. And we're going to see everything is a gift by grace. So a major word that we're going to look at is grace. And most of you are familiar with all of these, but we're going to look at these in some detail and make sure that everybody understands that. So by grace, everything is a gift. Even the Christian walk is by grace, not just salvation, everything. Because we have no resources. That's chapter 7 as well. In fact, if you want the best description of scumbagology, go to Romans 7. Ecclesiology, what's that doctrine? Study the church, the doctrine of the church. It's going to deal with practical issues of the church. Romans 12 talks about spiritual gifts, but it's also, there's other areas that will deal with ecclesiology. So this is a major theme. Paul is giving us his theology, his doctrine. And we are fortunate, in fact, by the Holy Spirit, making Paul run out of time. Paul was kind of one of these engineers, kind of hard-nosed guys. I've got this schedule. I'm going to go on this thing. I'm going to be in Rome by this time. Well, the Lord said, well, I'm going to just introduce some other things. I'm going to delay you here and there so that eventually when you get to Corinth, you're going to run out of time. And now you're going to have to write this letter because I I know that uh, Junko and Sharon and whoever, whoever else, they need the book of Romans. So it's inspired And now we have it today. So we have uh, theology proper, Christology, we have pneumatology, we have anthropology, soteriology, ecclesiology. And we still have some space, so let's fill up the space. (laughs) Oh, you ran out on your notes? Israelology. Now, that's not so common. In fact, a lot of theological works exclude a whole area of Israelology. And in fact, in the church today, this doctrine is all screwed up. You have to be real careful in terms of how different churches deal with the nation of Israel. So let me alert you, most of the body of Christ, most believers, and I'm talking about genuine believers, I'm not even talking about liberals, I'm just talking about 
an attitude in general towards Israel, I think, is an unbiblical attitude. And it ranges all the way from uh, anti-Semitism to milder forms of anti-Semitism. And the general attitude to the nation of Israel is that God is finished with Israel. And the attitude is all the way from it's okay to persecute them, it's okay to obliterate them, it's okay to get rid of them, because God is done with them, and it's a consequence of their rejecting of Messiah. They killed the Savior. They killed the Messiah. God has set them apart, and God is done with Israel. Now, God kind of surprised a lot of them, and now today, since 1948, there's a revived nation, which is a miracle in itself. The nation of Israel exists in the land of Israel with the common language, the official language is Hebrew, with all of their ancient culture, with the bloodline of Jewish people, and their established religion of Judaism, with a lot of modifications, all of that in Israel today. God is not finished with Israel, and that is what Romans tells us. We get that from the book of Romans. Israel has a future, and that is a large portion of the book of Romans, that's chapters 9 through 11. So we have three chapters devoted to the nation of Israel. So you call that Israelology. So we're going to get Paul's Israelology as well. And in that, the essence of what Paul is saying there is that God is perfectly righteous in setting aside the nation of Israel Because, yes, they did reject their Messiah, and yes, they are unrighteous as a people, and yes, they refused the salvation of Messiah, and as a result, the kingdom that the Messiah offered was postponed. It didn't become an amillennial kingdom. That kingdom was postponed, but it was not abandoned. In other words, there's still a kingdom, and that kingdom is promised to the nation of Israel. In fact, God has covenants with them, contracts, legal documents. And God is going to fulfill the let to the letter each of those covenants, each of those promises. There is a future for Israel, such that in Romans chapter 11, how many of Israel will be saved? All. All of Israel will be saved. Now, not every single Jew, but all in the sense of corporately, the nation is going to respond to Jesus Christ, and that's a future period of time. And we got all of the details when we were studying the Olivet Discourse. Remember, I said uh, eschatology is what? Jewish. Eschatology is Jewish. The Olivet Discourse doesn't deal with the church at all. It doesn't even mention the rapture. It's Jewish through and through. There's a seven-year period of time where God is going to use the circumstances to bring the nation of Israel into a saving relationship with himself. And in that time frame, during that seven-year period of time, all of Israel will be saved, as Romans 11.25 says. Israel has a future. They are going to be the focus of what God does after the rapture. 
and that focus is going to be how God is going to use the circumstances to bring the nation into a saving relationship in order to receive a second coming of Messiah. And Messiah will return. And remember, when Messiah is here, then what? Then we have a kingdom. We have the millennium. And that millennium will be established just as it's prophesied in the Old Testament, just as it's prophesied in uh, the Olivet Discourse. <coughs> to the letter, to the detail, it's going to be earthly, it's going to be material, it's going to be social, it's going to be economic, it's going to be political, and yes, it's going to be spiritual. It's going to have all of the aspects of the kingdom that God has promised the nation of Israel, that's future. That's Israelology. Uh, we have st- we still have a little space there, so let's fill that space up. Eschatology. There's some eschatology in the book of Romans. In fact, I just gave you some of that eschatology, and most of it deals with the nation of Israel. Jeff, I haven't read First of You. Fruit and Bombs? No, but he. In fact, that's probably one of the few works that expands this whole theology of Israelology. Is uh, Frutenbaum, Frutenbaum's uh, Israelology. That's the title. Of, yeah, that's the title of his book. And he's in conservative circles today. He's probably the, and he's a Jew. He's a converted Jew, so he has all the Jewish background. That's probably the, the most important work on Israelology. If any of you are interested, because a lot of the major theologies omit this, because of some of those theologies, particularly Reformed theology, because Reformed theology takes some of that position of rejecting Israel. Because they've rejected. There's what's called replacement theology. You've heard I mentioned that before. Replacement, as replacement would indicate, replacement theology is what? Heresy. Well, it's heresy, but what's the essence of it? The church replaces Israel. In other words, no more Israel, all of those promises, and you have to kind of twist it a little bit, but they would say all of the covenants are now enjoyed by the church, and Israel has lost all of those benefits. But what Romans tells us, the promises of God are irrevocable. He doesn't undo what he's promised. He doesn't violate his covenants. He doesn't undo them. And you probably suspected we're not going to get to our overview. I think what attributes some of this feeling in that part of the church, there's a feeling that, well, the Jews crucified Christ. Yes. Therefore, yeah. And persecuted. And by the way, the history of the church has been one of antagonism towards Israel. Historically, it's been the church that has persecuted Israel. Not in, in church history, that is. Jenny. He was anti-Semitic. Yes, Martin Luther. Very good point. And other reformers as well. And it's common today. Be aware of it. It's common today. They don't take take the view. Why? The Jewish side. There's a church. Yes, it's defensive. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And why it's hard to share the gospel because, you know, these are people that persecuted us historically. Yeah, you have to build a bridge there and build a relationship. And even then, it's difficult to share the gospel with Jewish people. God has a plan for them. Now, if you can lead a Jew to Christ today, they become part of the church and they escape the great tribulation. 
They will remain ethnically Jews, and God probably still has some plan in the millennial kingdom for them as Jews, but they actually benefit in both ways, the things relating to the church as well as the things relating to what God has promised uh, the nation of Israel. So theology is the emphasis. And in the book, we have a legal approach. Pat's no longer with us, but Pat, obviously a lawyer, we give him a hard time, kind of look at him as a contradiction. Can you be a Christian and a lawyer? It's kind of an impossible thing, right? With men, it's impossible. With lawyers, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. We're going to spend some time. In fact, the imagery of this whole legal concept permeates the book of Romans. These terms are legal terms, and we'll look at them carefully and in some detail. And what have I said about all theological terms, not in terms of the legal aspect, but all theological terms are have what? In terms of their meaning? They have an everyday meaning. Well, they have an everyday meaning. In other words, every theological word is taken out of the culture And then what the biblical writers do is they give additional, in some cases, theological meaning to everyday common words. Even the word salvation. Salvation, in the everyday sense, is, you know, I was riding my bike down the road, and this car was coming at me, and I had I not seen it, I would have been killed, but because I was able to dodge the guy, I was saved from being killed. I mean, that's the everyday usage, or a shipwreck. In fact, Paul uses the word, the same word for salvation in Acts chapter 17 to refer to being saved in terms of a physical calamity there, or saved from a military invasion, or whatever. Salvation in that everyday material sense. And the writers of the Old Testament and the writers of the New Testament now attach a spiritual salvation. Salvation from eternal damnation. Yeah. Yeah. Technical, yep. Well, technical or <clears throat> theological is probably better. Common, common, very specifically concept. Yeah, and every term you could say has a technical sense that may not even be theological. That's why I use the. So you have legal terms, law. We talk a lot about law, the law, very common in the book of Romans. Law. Guilt. That's what happens when you're in a court of law. You are either guilty or you're innocent, and the purpose of the court is to determine that. And if you're found guilty, then what? You're condemned. Condemnation, that's a legal term. Justification, that's a term from the courts. You are either condemned or you are what? Justified, or we use the word acquitted. But the word justification, we're going to find out, has a larger range of meaning as well. has other elements to it. It's not just acquittal. It has a positive aspect as well. Righteousness, we've already talked about that. That's the main word in the book of Romans and theological. 55 times. Good. Remember that. I might ask that question again. You won't fail next time. It'll be more precise. All right. Righteousness. A right standing before the law. And in Romans, a right standing before God's law, before the ultimate judge. A right standing before the ultimate judge, and that is as a result of being justified, 
and it's on the basis of what someone else has done. Propitiation, that's a law term. And he uses it in the book of Romans. And we'll talk about propitiation. That's a good theological word. That's a good legal term. It's a good biblical word. Doesn't occur frequently, but it occurs in the book of Romans. Since we have just one more space there. Imputation. That's both legal and also what else? Well, theological, but from another area of everyday life. Would you say? Math, yeah. Economic. It's an economic and we'll talk about all of these, but it's time to quit. So there's just a few more things that I'll say here in terms of characteristics, and we'll spend all of next week looking at our overview. Is that all right? Or do you want to get into verse 1? You're just so anxious. Closing thoughts. In the book of Romans, we will have all of the principles that transform. In fact, that's what I kind of titled our series here, Transforming Principles. But they must be applied. In other words, they're there, they're available, they are ours, but we have to apply them. Who wants to close for us? Steve, since you were at Rome, <laughs> we'll let you close. Father, thank you for this day for specifically the Amen.